0: So good to have you with us again, Lisa, and uh, band, thanks so much for this great music. I mean, all these songs that we've thought about, I love this song, it's one of my, this Bonnie Somerville song is one of my favorites, this idea of we're, this winding road that we are on, and um, really, I think our text this morning speaks to this idea of a winding road of sort of uncertainties versus certainties in life, and how do we find our way along that, and what are we really looking for in the first place? What is it we're really all looking for? As something that has to do with finding our way home, I think. Um, And so uh, I I wanted to to think about this text in particular because I think we want to suggest that we sometimes see this text in a previous light, perhaps. A lot of us have gone through that experience of sort of deconstructing, rethinking. I'm now looking at the idea of deconstructing. I think I like the term for myself more of decomposing. I know that's an odd term because people are going like, eh, I don't know. They got this kind of smell about that idea. And, you know. But in reality, things fall apart. Things decompose. And, if, and the truth of that matter is that even in the midst of that, however you want to think of resurrection, there's new life that comes out of that. So for me, my faith in, since I have been involved in Christianity as a child, I mean as a young adult... Um, in the Fundamentals Evangelical churches, I was in the Bible Church for a number of years, in the University of Christian Fellowship in college, and my faith has, come a, has changed a lot. It's morphed, it's decomposed, it's recomposed, it's deconstructed and reconstructed. So what I want to suggest is there's more of that that's being invited in this text than we might think. So that's hopefully what we'll get to as well. I want to start off, though, with a little bit of, of, of doubt, an experience of doubt that a friend told me about uh, not too long ago. She had gone on a skydiving, in, you know, adventure because it was her 55th, her 55th birthday, and she decided to do it. You know, the double-nickel year was going to be the year she was going to do some crazy stuff. And so she was having a great time, she said, and then she suddenly got terrified. And I said, well, what what was so terrifying? I mean, it's terrifying, the idea of going up several thousand feet and jumping anyway, but you're jumping with somebody, right? I mean, you're in a tandem thing. She said, yeah, but that's just it. She said, there we were, tandem, ready to jump. And the guy looked over at me and said, so how long have you been an instructor with this group? (laughs) She survived, but she didn't enjoy it as much as she thought she would. So in our story this morning, we've got one of two post-resurrection tales that are or two post-resurrection examples that are in the Gospel of John. John, of course, the Gospel was written, One of the, it's the last Gospel that we have in, in, in uh, possession of that was written of, of the four, and it's actually nothing like the other three. The other three are called synoptics because they are very much similar, they very much parallel each other. They've used a lot of the same source material for their writing, and all of them were written somewhere around the time of the fall of of the Temple of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., so anywhere from 35 to 40 years or more since Jesus' death. And so they have a whole generation that's passed, you understand, in terms of the writing of these texts. There's also a a diaspora, a scattering, if not a loss, of lives among the Jews who had been overrun now by by the Roman Empire. The temple was destroyed. Judaism was basically scattered and subjugated completely, and so you have these different communities. And John's community, we think, is probably more in Syria, perhaps, or in in uh, even a little bit, maybe closer to to uh, what we might now call Eastern Europe. But but what is unique about John's gospel? It was written probably 50 to. Actually, 70 to 80 years after Jesus. And so his gospel represents a whole different orientation. Some would say it's much more of a symbolic, mystical kind of gospel as well, which is interesting given the distance between it and Jesus' life and the reality that most evangelical fundamentalist kind of groups, like I grew up in or was involved in, John is the first gospel they go to. And that's important to keep that in mind because... Their orientation to this gospel is transactional, okay? And the orientation to a lot of these ideas of Orthodox Christianity oftentimes is transactional. Believe this or you're not in. Believe this or you don't have the fire insurance policy. You know what I mean by that, yeah? Okay, you got that, okay. It's transactional, and I think what's happening here when we see Jesus say, blessed are those who believe but haven't seen, is we're still thinking transactionally. But in fact, something else is going on here that I want to suggest to you. It's less of a transactional reality and it's less of basic, and, and because of that transactional understanding, also often you'll hear people say of the deconstructing movement, so to speak, because that's been around now for, you know, 30, 40 years, this idea of rethinking our faith and trying to make more sense out of it, or some people leaving church altogether, right? And so um, this idea of doubting is tantamount to heresy, is tantamount for a lot of folks to, to um, a, a, a denial of faith, absence of faith. And I want to suggest to you what it might mean to say, I believe, is actually more deeply because of doubt. So I'll throw this first image up here. See what you all think about this. This is one of my friends and uh, scholars. Do we have that image, Richard Rohr? Yes. Religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. <laughs> it's a strange thing to say, Right? It's awkward. It feels uncomfortable at first. And then some of us are going like, well, yeah, that's true. But then what does that say about everyone who's sort of deeply embedded in in this belief system? I mean, what are we saying when we say that? Or what are we saying when we're ourselves not really awake to who we are and what we think or to our doubts and what threats or uncertainties might come our way? What are we saying then when we lean on our faith? Are we hiding? Are we awake to it? How are we awake to faith? Religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. It's been used since the beginning of time as a way to control culture. We know that. We see that in our own time, oppressing certain individuals, excluding individuals from the community because of who they are, because of how they identify, because of their sexual orientation, because of their their, uh, religious orientation or their lack of religiosity altogether. I mean, we find so many ways in religion to exclude when we look at religion as a transactional zero-sum approach. And what I want to suggest is that that's something that probably happened more in the fourth century when Constantine took over and made made Christianity the state religion. In doing that, basically... the the Constantine and the various religious leaders of the time began to more codify and meet more uh, exclusively to define what was belief and what was wrong belief, what was right belief and what was wrong belief, and then uh, eventually who was in and who was out. And we haven't changed much since then, in spite of the Reformation, in spite of of, uh, Catholics, um, I can't think of what it's called, the Second... Vatican, thank you, Vatican II, we, aside from that, we still have this idea that we are bound by certain beliefs or we are excluded in this community. One of the things that, I, that, really, that really appealed to me about the Methodist church when I was drifting around trying to figure out who I was and where I was with regard to my faith, grew up Episcopal, then became fundamentalist and evangelical, and then literally became a, 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 a um, crusader. For fundamentalism. I was involved with things like the Bill Gothard seminar. Some of y'all are far back enough to know that crazy thing. I was involved in leadership with Child Evangelism Fellowship. We were converting four and five-year-olds to Christianity. It's not even funny, as funny as it is, it's not even funny. There's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of angst that I carry because of the way I acted until I was a young adult in my late, te- uh, actually in my early 20s, but my late teens. Gandhi once said that the problem with you people of the book, speaking of Christianity, Gandhi said that the problem with you people of the book is your tendency to love the book more than you love people. How many times have you discovered on your journey... When you've actually opened up enough to begin to ask, rather than to determine or to defend, you begin to ask questions, you begin to pay attention to, to who you're with, that you've discovered more in common with people that you would figure you'd had the least in common with, or people that you'd actually designated as the other or the enemy. But because you paused, because you breathed, which is what we practice in here, it's part of our spiritual practice, learning to breathe deeply and to stop, Before you react, you recognize what's going on. And then you realize there's much more there. But it required that willingness to doubt your proposition to begin with, right? It required that willingness to doubt. And then you find, well, what our song said, the crystal river that flows through everything, or what, or what uh, others have said is the hidden wholeness in all things, or what Paul the Apostle said to the Romans, to the Greeks in the Parthenon back when he, in the book of Acts, was addressing them and said, who is this unknown God but the very ground of our being, the one in whom we live and move and have all our being, the thread that runs through everything and everyone in the cosmos. So one of the things I want to suggest that the most significant takeaway we have from this story might not be about the importance of blind belief, belief without seeing. But instead, it's more about the spirituality that happens when we embody our spirituality after the life of Jesus. It literally means when we begin to touch our reality, when we begin to connect with our reality. So here's point one. Doubt and belief are two sides of the same coin. The same reality, and it's only by embodying our doubt and our anxiety do we experience the transcendent and connective presence of the sacred. I'm going to say that again. Now, if you put your address, by the way, if you've got your address on there, especially you visitors, every week I send out takeaways because I say so much, and people are like, I'm not writing notes. (laughs) I don't know why nobody, I see a few people write notes, and then my favorite thing is that I'll find several notes on paper that's left in the chairs, and the people left. (laughs) So, so if you write down your, your address, you know, I always follow up, and that's true for you online as well. I'll always send out these follow-ups, which is, I think, helpful sometimes to reinforce because we are thinking differently. And I've been very intentional for years about reframing how we understand things. If we are in this process of deconstructing and rethinking, it's not about throwing things out. And I want to suggest at the end, I'll repeat myself, but it's not about leaving Christianity. I think more of us are looking for home rather than leaving Christianity. All we're leaving is what wasn't comfortable, what wasn't connective, what wasn't speaking to us. And yet Christianity still speaks to that, I think. It still provides that way to be connective with others at the very ground of all of our shared being. So doubt and belief are two sides of the same reality. And it's only by embodying our doubt, our fear, our anxiety, only by embodying that. Do we begin to experience the transcendent and connective presence of the sacred? And what do I mean by embodying? Well, the word belief, if you actually look at the etymology, which I love to go look at etymology of words, if you look at the etymology of belief, it actually comes from the root word, which means to love. Did you know that? You may not have known that. Not making it up. The same shared root to love is in belief. And yet, we've made belief, because we've allowed more of the the ancient Greco-Roman sort of Cartesian way of looking at things as either-or, you know, dualistically, that belief becomes a transactional sort of concept rather than a way of being. Belief means to love. So, an embodied experience of the sacred requires our willingness to love in our moments to be vulnerable, to be open, to be present to, and then to discover what we did not know was there, but that we find our connectedness with one another. We can do this. You do this in nature all the time. How, why is it so much that everybody says, we love to be out on nature? This week is our kind of lead up to Earth Day, right? And we're, we're so anxious, and I know we're so concerned, many of us, about where we are with climate change and where we are with climate legislation and where we are with climate justice, because in fact... When we don't deal with the climate problems, we are actually doing injustice to so, to so many people around the world because it's creating more and more food insecurity, more and more migration problems, et cetera, et cetera. You know all about this. So how do we remain connected? Well, we go out in nature and we touch things. And oftentimes my therapist back in the day uh, when I spent more time going to a therapist would often say, have you done a walk today? If I'm feeling anxious, and I'd say no. We well, need to walk, but you need to walk very slowly. And you just need to look at your steps where you're walking. And don't think about anything else. And if you do, start thinking about your steps again. Just walk slowly. Or maybe walk out in the woods. And then sometimes she would say, if I'm feeling anxious because I would have panic attacks. I, I used to have those much more frequently than I do now. And she would say, well, have you gone outside when you're having a panic attack? And would you just lay down in the grass? And just feel it. And if you don't feel the grass, then turn around and lay down face forward in the grass and feel the moisture up against your cheek. And just remember that you're a part of all of this. The trees, the grass, nature, it all knows where it's supposed to be and what's going on. You just need to rest in that. It's powerful to embody this idea of love. Now, we know in Job, when Job is miserable and Job has has experienced this wonderful parable in the Old Testament, has experienced all these traumatic realities, what does God tell Job to do? In the 12th chapter, God says, go ask the animals what they think. Let them teach you. Let the birds tell you what's going on. Put your ear to the earth. The fish, the ocean, listen to them. Learn the basics. I'm reading from the message version. Learn the basics. Let them tell you their stories. Isn't it clear that they all know and agree that God is sovereign, the heart of reality, that he holds all things in his hand? Let's reframe this a little bit. And instead of saying sovereignty, let's use the language that's more common with this idea of being grounded and reframe that and think, isn't it clear that love is at the very heart of things? First John 4, God is love. If we say we love, but we don't, we hate someone, then we just don't know what we're talking about. But if we say we love and we love someone, we are participating in God's being in the world. Every living soul, yes, every breathing creature, isn't it all common sense? As common, it says in in the Bible, as common as the sense of your taste. This reminded me of a story when I was doing some hiking in Longs Peak and in Estes Park. And I heard this ranger tell this story as, he was, as she was reminding us of how to be safe because we'd be hiking early in the morning the next day and then be hiking all day long. And even though it's a well-traveled trail, there are bears. There are brown bears and there's the occasional grizzly bear. And she said, "Now you have to be careful. So wear a whistle. If you get far enough away from other people, you'll be by yourself out there. And you might be out there late in the afternoon and early evening coming back when bears are foraging. So you want to have a whistle." And then also take some pepper spray, just in case. We're like, all right, I'm not feeling good about it. And she said, don't worry about it. You can always tell if there's any presence of bears." she said. First of all, if there are blackberries, it's pretty easy. You'll see the, the, the scat, the, you know, the poo. You'll see the scat there, and it will have some element. You'll have little pieces of maybe some fruit or some plant life there and there. And then she said, and then you'll see the grizzly scat, and it will have whistles, and it will have, <laughs> it will have the smell of pepper spray. <laughs> Next slide. Re-examine all that you have been told and dismiss what insults your soul. This idea of love requires sometimes that we question where we are because we think we're loving, we think we're being embodied, and yet we're still stuck in transactional land. We're still stuck in this idea of certain beliefs have to be be ascended to, have to be owned up to as opposed to being present to what's sacred in in our midst. So I wanted to use this next slide that I saw, this wonderful piece of graffiti. And then I've added something at the top. See if it comes up here. There we go. I'll read it for you because it's kind of small. One of my favorite Emerson quotes. There is a soul at the center of nature and over the will of every human being. It is so infused its strong enchantment into nature that we prosper when we accept its advice. Friends, we are probably not nearly as connected to our reality and our moments as we ought to be. Life continues to move on around us, and yet we get preoccupied with so much, with media, with, with, uh, with our devices, with our busyness, the challenges for us to be embodied. And the less embodied we are, the more we're preoccupied in our head. This is important because where do we spend most of our time? What does that person think of me? What are they thinking of me right now? Am I looking pr- do I look good? Do I, am I handsome? Am I short? Am I tall? Am I, am I this? Am I that? Am I, I mean, we think about all of these things. Did I do that right? Do I believe right? We're all in our head, and we're not in our bodies. And one of the most profound ways to be connected to our body is to go back to sort of our origin, which is we are a part of the living body of the earth around us. How often... Do we connect with our reality? And we can do that in presence with one another as well. All it takes is that moment to pause and to breathe as opposed to defend and define. But if we just pause and breathe for a moment and then get curious, we find out like Moses, you know, we're standing on sacred ground. There are burning bushes all over the place. We've just forgotten to take off our shoes. Let me see this next slide. So here's point number two. Our bodies know the way home. How to be present to life, to dance and sing and give birth, to make love, to mourn, to 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 make art, to grieve, to connect, to live, to die. Our bodies know how to do all of that. It's our minds that make us homeless. Our bodies know the way. It's our minds that make us homeless. What if doubt and its cousin skepticism are actually about finding that path back to an embodied experience of the sacredness that we are all, that moves and flows through all of us? What if doubt and its cousin skepticism is about reconnecting to that with humility, mercy, attentiveness, all of those things that Jesus' whole life was about, what if we understand John's gospel, as, as, as Spong would say and others would say, that it's a mystical gospel that is trying to remind us metaphorically, through the story form, whatever, that the path towards sacredness, towards connectiveness with God is the path of love, of embodying our presence with one another. The road to faith through doubt often ends up lonely. I don't know how many of you have left churches where you were before because of any number of reasons. I know for Linda and I, when we left, now Linda was rooted in Methodism, and Methodism, it turned out, had this wonderful thing called John Wesley's fourfold norm, or the quadrilateral, which was that it wasn't just about Scripture. It also had to be about reason. It had to be about tradition. It had to be about experience. And those four things had to be in a dance with each other all the time so that you're thinking about what you're thinking that you're experiencing what you're thinking, that everything is checked by everything else, so that it's a constant movement. Now, does that mean that you're anchored in certainty? No. Does that mean that you can go to a church and everybody's going to think like you? No. Does that mean that everyone in here that might be progressive is going to have to go engage with someone else that's going to be fundamentalist, and is going to have to be patient and realize that we're all on this same path trying to get home. We just don't all see it as clearly, maybe. But there's stuff for us to learn no matter what. That's the challenge that Methodism offers us. And it's also the challenge that if you you know what's going on, Methodism is having a problem with, right? Because we're locked into this idea that it's about the head and not about the embodiment. That it's about a fire insurance plan. But I think it's really just about fear. It's just about unfamiliarity and fear and uncertainty. And when that happens, we don't go to our bodies, people. (laughs) We go to our heads and we get scared and we worry and we get deeper and deeper into the spiral. When all we need to do is go hug a tree for a while, (laughs) go lay down in the grass, go sit down next to someone and just look at them for a while. I was at the airport not too long ago, and a teacher was there with, with, uh, there was this teacher there, and there was this mom with her seven-year-old daughter, and they were talking, and I overheard the mom ask this teacher, I know she's a teacher, because the mom asked this woman, what do you do for a living? She says, I'm a college teacher, I'm a professor. And the mother said, what do you teach? And the woman said, I teach art. And I kid you not, the little girl looked up in astonishment and said, they forgot how to draw? (laughs) Because we forget how to draw. Right? How many of you would be willing? I've still got a large, beautiful, leather-bound sketchbook I talked about 10 years ago when I first got here, and there's nothing on any of the pages because I'm terrified of drawing. I've forgotten how to draw. Point number three. Band, y'all can start to come on up if you like. Doubt is really the inner invitation to see something new a more harmonious, connective way of being. Doubt is nothing bad, nothing, nothing negative. In fact, I encourage it. Skepticism is healthy. But don't let skepticism be pessimism. Let it be prophetic. Let it be challenging. Let it say, what else am I not seeing here? Let doubt be a path that moves you from the complexity of your faith where you're just trying to memorize and learn all the stuff that you're supposed to know, and you're now moving into perplexity where it's confusing and you're not sure what you know, and then sit with it. Be present with it for a while, and then let that prophetic doubt remind you to be present enough that you can begin to feel something new, and you'll find your way home. This last slide is just a quote I want to quote before they sing this uh, last song. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist uh, priest who passed away this last year, I believe it was, he had this wonderful, he had this wonderful uh, quote that I still uh, carry around with me from time to time, and I remind myself of it. I laugh when I think how I once sought paradise as a realm outside the world of birth and death. You know, fire insurance for the Buddhists, a different kind of thing, right? Paradise. I once sought paradise as a realm outside the world of birth and death. It is right in the world of birth and death that the miraculous truth is revealed right in it. But it's not the laughter of someone who suddenly acquires a great fortune, neither it is the laughter of someone who has suddenly won a great victory. It is rather the laughter of one who after having painfully searched for something for a long time, finds it one morning in the pocket of her coat. That's really all this is about, is embodying... The sacredness enough to be present that we begin to see, it's not only here, it's been with me all along, it's also there with them, also here in every moment, in every breath, in every life. It's a part of the whole thing, and isn't that amazing? Amen. Amen.